All right, Jeremiah 32, we'll be reading from 17 to 27. 32, 20, 17 to 27. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power, and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and has made thee a name as at, that, at, as at this day, and has brought forth the, thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with stretched out arm, and with great terror, and has given them this land which thou didst swear to, the, to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts, they are come unto, this, unto the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? You may be seated. Morning. It's good to be in the house of God this morning. We serve an awesome God. And this morning I'd like to talk about that awesome God that we serve. I know it's a topic that's probably not um, preached about very often, and I guess at least I don't feel it has been. Um, I think about who God is, and I think, you know, sometimes I don't think I understand God very well. We think we understand Jesus Christ maybe a little better, but who is God? What are his attributes? I remember sermons in the past about the attributes of God, and I usually got a little bored on those sermons, and hopefully nobody falls asleep on the sermon on the attributes of God this morning, because I really do believe who God is is very important in how we understand God. There's a legend that says that there was an early church father that was once challenged by a pagan who held up an idol to him and sarcastically said, here's my God, where's yours? To which he replied, I cannot show you my God, not because he doesn't exist, because, but because you have no eyes to see him. And this morning I'd like to ask us a question, do we have eyes to see God? Can we see God? Do we know who he is? If we believe 
in God, and we believe that we are his sons and daughters, then we should know him. If we have a relationship with him, we should know him. People we have relationships with, we usually know. What is our view of God? Do we really see him for what he is? Or are we a little bit like the pagan who doesn't have eyes to see him? Worthwhile relationships are based on knowledge. When we meet someone for the first time, we don't usually know them very well. Until we spend time with him and learn more about him. As we get to know them, our relationship with them grows. In the same way, a good relationship with God must be rooted in a firm understanding of him. And there's where I go. And I know the world has complicated this in many ways. Or I should just say Satan has. Because Satan does not want us to understand and know God. A.W. Tozer said this, and I think we probably um, saw this quote before. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. I remember hearing that quote over the pulpit. I'm not sure who said it. Um, it didn't register very well at the time. But as you think about that, let that sink in. Maybe a little hard to comprehend. But what you think about God is the most important thing about you. How do you think of God? Who do you think he is? What is he? Why is it important to view God correctly? It is said a high view of God, you may have heard this quote too, a high view of God leads to high and holy living, great worship, evangelism, and service. And we talked about quite a few of those things this morning already. A low view of God leads to a low base way of interacting with God, self, and others. So it is important that we have a high view of God and understand who he really is. And remember, Satan is constantly trying to knock that down, trying to destroy who God is. This morning, as we come to church to worship, we need to understand that our worship of God will totally depend on our view of God. Now, that sounds kind of basic. We have great sing- if we have great singing, good Sunday school class, a great sermon, but we have a low view of God, we're probably not going to be able to worship God this morning. I hope we're getting the point. We really do need an accurate understanding of who God is. And I'll say this right now. I don't expect to, in the next 30 minutes, be able to give us a very clear, accurate view of God. So I'm going to stick with five very basic attributes, and I'm not going to spend much time on each one just to help us skim over the surface. Obviously, we could spend probably years talking about who God is, um, but I want to just get five quick attributes of God and maybe talk about them a little bit to just get us started on this idea of learning who God is. Christians must become better equipped to understand themselves and the world around them by understanding who God is. Steve Lawson says this, because every area of one's life and worldview is influenced by one's understanding of God, Every area of our life and all of our worldview is is, um, influenced by our understanding of God. It is essential to understand his defining attributes. God's attributes define and describe who God is. Now, the word attribute itself probably gets us lost. What does that mean? It just means understanding his character or his characteristics or who who God really is. We want to have a relationship with God. We really need to know who he is. So what are God's attributes? Who is God? I believe for too long because God is so big and so great and so hard to comprehend, we have given up trying to understand him. Or maybe I should say, like I said earlier, the devil has confused us and tries to keep us from understanding who God is. And I think 
in the world in the, we live in right now, and especially in the age we live in, Satan has really knocked who God really is. And our understanding of God has probably become very, very twisted. And probably each one of us has played into or has got a piece of what the world or what Satan has tried to make us believe about God. I'm sure the devil is going to do all he can to confuse, distract, and mislead us of our understanding of God. I'd like to make it very clear. God is looking to make himself known to us. He doesn't want it to be confusing. He doesn't want it to be unclear. He wants us to understand who he is. He wants us to get a better view of who he is. He wants us to have an understanding of who he is. We can't have a relationship with him, like I said earlier, unless we know him and understand him. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says this. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. That's the next verse say. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understand and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, righteousness, and the earth for. In these things I delight, saith the Lord. You get that? Nothing else should we be glory in as man, but glory that we understand him. And I love what it says. It doesn't say just understand his love, but it says loving kindness. It says his just, uh, sorry. It says his judgment, his loving kindness, and his righteousness. A full view of God. If we just know, understand one part of God, do we really understand him? Well, probably not, because we're probably not even understanding that part, because that part is twisted if we only understand one part. I don't know if that makes sense. Hosea 6.6, 6, ESV here. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So we're all going to be doing things this week to help others, and we're going to do things to help um, God, we think, right? But God's saying those sacrifices are worthless compared to my knowledge of him. So let's spend time learning who God is. Five attributes of God. I'm just going to mention um, these attributes. God is all, and I'm just going to go over the five here, and then I'm going to um, talk about each one. God is an all-powerful. He is omnipotent. And because God is all-powerful and omnipotent, he is sovereign. He's a supreme ruler and in total control. And because he is sovereign, he is just and holy. And because he is just, he is loving. And because he is loving, he is merciful. Those five go together. You can't take one without the other. Because of one, he becomes the other. Um, knowing God is understanding all five of those. Those are five basic ones. Obviously, there are a lot more attributes to God than just that. And we're going to start off with the first one. God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Um, the word omnipotent basically means, and here's another big word, and again, maybe losing some of us um, here, but it basically means being able to do anything. Again, this morning, I hope when I talk about the attributes of God, I want to keep it basic and simple so we can all understand. God is all-powerful, okay? Not hard to understand. He can do anything. A child understands that. Do we all understand that? God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He can do anything. In Jeremiah 32, 17, it says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for thee. Do we understand that? I think we all do. And yet when it comes to really accepting that, sometimes it's a little hard. Do we really believe God has unlimited power? That there's nothing too big or too hard for him? 
For me, so many times, I'm a little like Peter when he was walking on the water um, to meet Jesus and understand. <clears throat> our understanding and faith of God is, is all-powerful, is strong, and we can even walk on water. But we understand what happened to Peter. We heard this illustration many times. As soon as he took his eyes off him, he forgot who God was. He forgot his understanding of God. And I think that's how I am often. I believe God's all-powerful, and then I take my eyes off of him, and I start wavering. And, of course, we know the consequences for that. How well do we believe this? When hard times come, can we really believe his power is unlimited? How far will we take his unlimited power? Does that mean he can sustain us, that we really serve an all-powerful God that can do anything? And Joe and Susan, I think you probably... um, wavered in some of that this last month, but also um, that faith in him is what carried you through. And for many of us, we've seen hard times. Um, When those hard times come, we need to remember that we have an all-powerful God. I believe we're often like the children of Israel in Psalm 78. It says this, How often did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God. Now listen to this. And limited the Holy One of Israel. Now how did they limit him? Context here for the word limited means they diminished the expectations of an unlimited God. They limited God by they diminished his expectations. They didn't really believe he was all that great. Then in verse 42 it says, And they remembered not his hand, nor the day when they delivered him from the enemy. Two things they did, which may sound a little little bit familiar. They limited or diminished what they really believed God could do, and they forgot sound like us? We limit it or diminish what we think God can do, and we forget. Do we limit or diminish the expectation of God? Do we remember or do we know that God is powerful and omnipotent? Okay, the next one. Uh, sorry. God is sovereign. He is supreme, a ruler and in control. And um, Glenn preached on this when he talked about uh, his sermon in Job. And again, I don't have much time to go into this one. But look at Daniel 4.35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will and in, the, and in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him. Does that sound like a sovereign God? Somebody tell me who, who said that. A very sovereign leader. Probably one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world, at least in the top ten. Who was it? Nebuchadnezzar said this. He knew God. He come to know God. He come to believe God was completely in control. And that's what sovereignty is. God's sovereignty is one of the most important principles in understanding God and is also the most hotly debated attribute. But I also believe it is one of the most important attributes to understand and accept. In our Sunday school lesson this morning, sovereignty of God came up hard one, hard one when you think of um, Hagar and um, when you think of Abraham and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael, um, it doesn't make sense. But the sovereignty of God is so important to understand that God is in control. Whether or not God is actually sovereign is usually not a topic of debate in mainstream Christianity, but it is how much, um, how much or how, how much is God involved in our, the affairs of today. What you often find in disagreement is to what extent God applies his sovereignty, especially how much control he exerts over the wills of men. 
When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we mean he rules the universe. He is in complete control. But the debate begins over when and where his control is direct and when it is indirect. I want to ask us here today, do we really believe that God is in complete control? God is described in the Bible as an all-powerful, all-knowing, in Psalms 147, and responsible for the creation of everything. You know that in Genesis 1. This is saying that nothing in the universe occurs without God's permission. God has the power and knowledge to prevent anything he chooses to prevent. So anything that does not happen must at the very least be allowed by God. Now that gets really hard to accept and understand sometimes. At the same time, the Bible describes God as offering humanity choices. And this is where it gets hard, right? Holding them personally responsible for their sins, Exodus 20, verse 5. Being unhappy with some of their actions, Numbers 25, 3. The fact that sin exists at all proves that, what does it prove? That not all things that happen are the direct actions of God, who is holy, right? He doesn't produce sin. He allows us to make choices. There is a point at which God chooses to allow things that he does not directly cause. The fact that God is sovereign essentially means that he has the power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses without his creation. Whether or not he actually exerts that level of control in any given circumstance is actually a completely different question. Here's a, um, maybe an illustration. And you know how illustrations are. They're kind of small, and they don't really serve it completely. But if a man put an ant in a bowl... Think about the sovereignty of man over that ant, okay? You're man, and you take an ant, you put it in the bowl. The ant may try to crawl out, and the man may not want this to happen, but the man is not forced to crush the ant or stop it from crawling out, right? There's a difference between allowing the ant to leave the bowl and helplessly watching it as it escapes. Some people in their version of God's sovereignty think that if the man is not actively holding the ant inside the bull, then he must be unable to keep it at all, and that's not how it is. I don't know, that's getting a little complicated and, and hard to understand, but God is in control, and yet he lets us make choices. And how many choices he lets us to make and what choices um, he gets involved in in our lives and what he allows us to continue is two different things. That's where the sovereignty of God comes in. We know that it is not true in the illustration of the ant. Neither is it true with God and his power of the universe. He is not, does not have to um, control everything about that ant. The illustration of man and the ant is a vague parallel to God's sovereignty over mankind. God has the ability to do anything, to take actions, intervene in any situation, but he often chooses to act indirectly or to allow certain things for reasons of his own. Our sovereign God, you have made the heaven and the earth. By your great power and outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. And if God is sovereign and in control, we also know that he is, God is just and holy. Third attribute, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declares declaring the end from the beginning and, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Aren't you glad God's counsel stands? 
We are not dependent on an imperfect world system. Every time we go through elections and we go through um, some of the craziness that's happening in our world, I'm just reminded again, I am so thankful that we have a just God who is fair and just and will, is in control of everything. The more our country and world seems to fall apart, the more the book of Revelation becomes comforting to me. I'm so thankful for a just judge that will someday justly judge the world. I, a lot of people struggle with the thought of talking about God's justice and his holiness. And I do understand that because as a very unrighteous person myself, an unholy person, I am in real trouble when standing before a holy God. I think we understand that. I hope none of us think we're righteous enough to stand before the righteous judge and think without Jesus Christ we have a chance. I don't like to think of God who will judge the sinner justly and because of that judgment they will be sent to hell. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness surpass the truth. And Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God, in Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge and God who feels indignation every day. Hard for us to kind of like to hear those verses. It's hard for us to comprehend that God can judge justly. Talking about that in Sunday school lesson already. Um, It is very hard to understand how a loving God can send someone to hell for eternity. But on the other hand, I'll say this, I grew up a third born in the family where fairness seemed like a pretty big deal to me. Justice was one of the biggest things that I worried about. So God being a just God, in some ways, I feel really good about. There's nobody going to get it wrong when we get to heaven. God's not going to get it wrong. He's going to get it right every time. Um, when he judges, his justice, his justice will be perfect. And that gives me comfort. This attribute, this attribute of just, fair judge is comforting and should be comforting and wonderful to me. I like the thought that no matter what, in the end, everyone will be judged justly. And that includes me. I realize that it's impossible for me to comprehend how God can completely, justly bring justice toward all mankind. But a faith and understanding in the holy, just God is so important for all of us to understand and believe. Understanding, but an understanding of a just and holy God should give us pause and should bring a holy fear into our lives. Because if justice is served for me by a just and holy God, I'm in real trouble. Because there's no way, if I understand God's justice, that I'll have any chance with my goodness to get into heaven. Do we understand that? If God's attributes stop here, I'm in real trouble. We are okay with judging the evil sinner, but do we understand that the evil sinner is me? And without the help of a Savior, we have no chance but to spend eternity in hell. 
away from a holy and just God. Do we understand that? God can't live with sin. He can't allow sin into heaven. It would not be a perfect and good heaven if he would allow my sin to be there. And yet I believe there's a way for sinners like me and you to be in heaven. That's an awesome thought. And the only way for me and the only way for that to happen is not by my goodness, but by an awesome, loving God, which brings me to the next attribute. God is love. And I think the verse comes to my mind immediately when I think of God being a God of love is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the love of God? Well, God is love. It is who he is. Before anything was created, God was love. Love is the nature of God. All other attributes of God flow out of God's love. The love of God is what sent his only son to die for my sins, and this act is the most loving thing God could ever do. I don't know, for us as parents, maybe we can understand this a little bit better, but to send our perfect son to earth to deal with a wicked sinner like me doesn't seem right. But it was the most loving thing our God could do, because other than that, not one of us has a chance. We often talk about God being love, and that is who he is, sending his son to die so I can live. That surpasses anything anyone has ever done in loving anyone else. Sending his own precious son to take the place of a wretched sinner like me. I think, about, I think of the song, and I'm not going to talk about love a whole lot, but the song, The Love of God is Greater Far. Can we sing that a verse of that? Jordan, do you want to start that? Let's sing the first verse. Just help us understand and realize who this God is and how much he loves us. for God's love, what he did for us on the cross, what he did in sending his son. Next attribute, God is merciful. But the interesting thing is that the love of God never saved a sinner. The love of God calls God to move in a direction of mercy and grace that caused him to exercise mercy for us as sinners. Love can be expressed in many ways. Love can be expressed in giving. Um, it can be expressed in presence. But a person knows he is loved when he is forgiven and when he receives mercy. Mercy is an action word. Okay? It comes from the love of God. It's the action. And Jesus, it's something... Okay. Looks like I lost my thing. Um... 
I'll leave that go. So God is merciful. Yahweh, O God, O mercy and compassion, slow to anger, but rich in faithful kindness and fatality. He who maintains his faithful kindness to thousands for to thousands, forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, who does not simply declare someone innocent, but visits the wickedness of the fathers upon the sons and grandsons to the third and fourth generation. Love is who God love is who God is. Mercy and forgiveness is the action of God's love. Close that up. Um, love, <clears throat> Mark 6.34 says it this way, And Jesus, when he came out, saw many people and was moved with compassion toward them or moved with mercy towards them because they were his sheep, not having shepherd. And Psalm 34.17 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their trouble. That is God's mercy. Um, mercy means to stoop down in kindness to someone who is inferior, someone in need. Look at this picture of a dad helping his son. The father comes down to his son's level and gives help. God, our father, comes down to our level and gives us mercy. Mercy means to have pity on someone and to act in a way that helps them. And we know the story of God um, sending his son for us. That was his mercy to us. God's mercy didn't come into being when man sinned. Mercy is a part of God's infinite, infinite, no beginning and no ending. God has always been merciful and always will be merciful. God doesn't change. You know, in Lamentation, a steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Does God stop being merciful when a non-believer dies and goes to hell? As humans, we have a hard time understanding how God's mercy never changes. And when something, when um, God and his justice, is his mercy gone? That's where we start having a hard time comprehending his mercy. In his justice, we find God's mercy also. Listen to this, in Ecclesiastes 33, 11 says this, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. God doesn't want the wicked to die. He's extending mercy to them. Every single person receives God's mercy. Since the wages of sin is death, we should all be dead immediately. But God's mercy gives all men a chance. God is postponing his judgment of sin. He is showing mercy and delaying judgment. The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is waiting. That's his mercy. God hears our cries. God sees our tears. God knows our trouble, and he acts to help us. Mercy cannot cancel justice. God is both completely merciful and completely just. He may not, <clears throat> we may not understand how it works, but that is our limited ability to understand. God is God. There's no conflict between God's justice and God's mercy. Both are equally true and right with God. Both don't just happen at a separate time, like now God's merciful and now God's just. God is always completely just and completely mercy. I hope we can see these attributes of God's as not one being better or different than another. They are two side, there are not two ditches, but all perfectly in the center of the road. You could probably say that they are all actually kind of the same attribute, just worked out in different ways. They are all who God is. They all work together to make who he is. Does that make sense? His sovereignty. 
His just, His love, His mercy, His supremacy are all who God is. One doesn't happen one time and another the other. They are all happening all the time. In conclusion, I'd like to say this. There are four ways to seek to know God. Maybe the practical part here um, for all of us. I'm guessing we all are here today thinking, I really do want to know God better. I think we probably all believe that. What are we going to do about it this week? So what do we do to know God? If we want to understand God better and understand all his attributes, what are we going to do? Matthew 5, 8, it says, The pure in heart will see God. We know that verse. I think what it's saying there, the pure in heart will know God. We ask the question, how can I know God better today? How can I have that be pure in heart? I have four ways here this morning. And the first one is, we can know God. It says this in Romans 1, 19 and 20. Because may God be manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even by his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We can seek to know God in creation. I think that's kind of um, exciting for some of us who love to be out um, in the woods, or for some of us who enjoy the beauty of flowers and the beauty of God's creation, love sunsets. God says we should find him in creation. We can take in the beauty and splendor all around us and recognize that these created things testify to the existence of God, and I think Romans says that. So there's nothing wrong. I realize um, there's non-Christians all the time like to worship nature. God is saying when we can go into nature, we can see him in that and get to know him better. Knowing God through his creation is a small way to get to know God better, but it is a way to understand better who God is. So this week, we see the beauty of God's nature around us, and there's lots of it. Let's take that in, and let's get to know God better. Second thing I have, seek him with a pure heart. The Bible says that God has revealed his existence to humans in their conscience by impressing his law on their hearts even before they hear the gospel message. Romans 2, um, 14 and 15 who do not have the law by nature, but do the things in the law, these, although have not, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. And then verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves and their thoughts. Um, so God wants to know, us to know him through our conscience or through our hearts. Um, God's instilling in us a pure heart. It wants to instill in us a pure heart so we can know him better. God's purpose for placing this yearning in a human heart is so that we might have a living personal relationship with him. His conscience is constantly reminding us to keep a pure heart. I don't know how it is for you, but I see this so so many times throughout the day. God keeps reminding me to keep my heart pure. Why? So I can know him better. My heart is unpure. It's hard to know and see him. Third thing I have, seek him through our knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. If we know his son, we can know him. God has revealed himself to us in most, with the most clarity in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the living, breathing, flesh and blood, human presentation of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I know Jesus isn't dwelling among us, but we can study Christ We can understand who he was when he was here. The signs and wonders Jesus performed revealed the glory and power of God. 
The way he lived and his teachings and his parables all demonstrated how much the Father cares for us. The way to know the Father and have relationship with him is to know the Son, who is the fullness of the Father. And I think there's verses that would show us that. And then the last one is, seek him, I think we know this, through his word. One of the greatest ways to get to know the person of Jesus is through the word of God. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. His purpose throughout history, Jesus himself taught that the scripture reveals who he is. The Bible presents us with eyewitness testimonies of a revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And I think there's clarity. Um, We can find clarity in knowing God through the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, scripture is God's revelation of himself for all of us to read and to understand. Um, Many people can acknowledge the fact that there is a God, but God wants us to know him intimately, to spend our eternity, to spend all our time here on earth getting to know him. So in conclusion, quickly, what will we do this week to know God? Will we spend time in his creation worshiping him? Will we strive to have a pure heart by obeying his laws and his word? Will we seek to better know his son by following and obeying him? And by knowing his son, we will better know him. And will we read and study his word? Because like it says in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I hope the message gives us a desire to know God better and to build that relationship with him. Well, let's spend this week getting a glimpse, a better understanding of a God, getting to know him better. Let's remind ourselves of who our God is, that he is an awesome, powerful, loving, just, mercy, um, and all five of the attributes. Remember, what comes in our mind when we think of God is probably the most important thing about us. So let's continue um, to strive to get to know him better. If you like, let's kneel together for prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're an awesome God that we can trust and learn to love and know personally. Just pray that as a church that we would strive um, for a better relationship with you, a better knowledge of you, a better understanding of you. Thank you for the church here. Thank you that we can together learn to know you. Thank you that our um, time together helps us learn to know you better and pray that our relationships and our time together um, would strive, uh, would help us strive to um, become more like you. Thank you for the morning service. Thank you for um, what you've done for us and for the blessings you've given us. Let's pray that as we go about our week, that we could um, spend our time um, focusing on the important things of life, and um, spend our time focusing on you and the people around us that you've given us. Watch over us and keep us in your care. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>